a social outcast. He's born to a mom whose his dad had a one-night stand and had a good time one evening, and oops, she got pregnant. And so here the writer is telling you, he is mighty, but I want you to know there's something wrong with him socially. He's an outcast in our society. And then the verses continue to go on. Gilead's, Jephthah's father, his wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels, <laughs> that's a fun word, gathered around him and followed him. So here you have Jephthah, and he's got these brothers, and they're like, you know what? Your mom's not our mom. Your mom's a prostitute. In fact, we don't like you. Get away from here. You're not really part of our family. And so they drive him off, and then he lands in this foreign land called Tob with a gang of scoundrels that are just hanging out with him now. Now, the two most important things in the ancient world are land and family. And Jephthah has none of those. His family has disowned him. He's a social outcast. They drove him away, and now he has no land. He's in this foreign land of Tob with a group of scoundrels. You know what's also interesting here? He must be, Jephthah must be a good leader, or at least attractional, because a gang followed him and stayed with him. And again, aren't the Israelites looking for someone to lead them against the Ammonites? This might be your guy. Verse 4, sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our what? Commander, so we can fight the Ammonites. Notice before in chapter 10, when the elders were in mitzvah, they said, we need someone to help us fight and we'll make him head over it all. And now they've changed the verbiage and say, you know what? Okay, maybe not the head, but at least commander. And here's Jephthah. Okay, Jephthah said to them, Hold on. Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? You never got my back when my family said, get out of here. You're not one of us. You have no inheritance. And now, how convenient. You're in trouble. You need me. And the rebuttal of the elders? Nevertheless. In other words, you know what? Jephthah, that happened back then. Let's worry about now. Jephthah, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be what? They changed it again. Head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? Really? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. 
we will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. So it was literally their wishy-washy, right? Ah, should we make him head? Should we make him commander? We've told them you can be head. We've told them you can be commander. Okay, fine, you just get it all. Just help us defeat the Ammonites, please. So, Jephthah, and he repeated all these words before the Lord in Mitzvah. Now, let's go back to the map to get this. Here's Mitzvah again, where Jephthah's from, where the elders got there and said, hey, we need someone to be head over us to fight these people group because they're wrecking havoc on us. Here is Tob, where it's about 45 miles that uh, Jephthah was driven away from his family there. They trek 45 miles to say, hey, Jephthah, we really need you. You are a mighty warrior. We need you, and we'll crown you head and commander over the army. So Jephthah said, okay, fine. Jephthah comes back, and they're back at mitzvah. Now, here's what's interesting about the story. Jephthah arrives back at mitzvah, and he's like, okay, um, I don't think war's really the right thing. I'm going to try a very diplomatic policy here. I'm going to send messengers to see what's up with the king of Ammonites. And here's what Jephthah sent the messengers to uh, the Ammonite king with the question, what do you have against me that you have attacked my country? And the king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers, when Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabuk, all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peacefully. And you sit there and you go, oh, now we understand. It's a land dispute. The Ammonite king just wants his territory back, and Jephthah doesn't want war. The Ammonite king says, give it back peacefully. He doesn't want war. But what's going on? What in the world is the Arnon in the Jabuk? Like, what? I don't get it. Well, let's go back to the map. Map's our friend. Here's Ammon. Okay? What he's saying is there's these two wadi systems to the north and to the south. And the northern wadi system is the Jabuk River. The southern wadi system off the Dead Sea is the Arnon River. And what he's after, the king is saying... I want my water systems back. You took these away from me, and water is life in the ancient world. Give it back to me. Now, Jephthah has a rebuttal for the king. He actually responds back with messengers and says, hey, go tell the king, you have your history wrong. What really happened is, yes, we came in and we started to take over the land, but it's the process of taking over here. You attacked us. We're just defending ourselves, and as we defended ourselves, we settled here. And these are the two tribes that are here. Gad and Reuben are settled right there. And he's like, Ammonite king, you're wrong. You have your history wrong. And the king of Ammon, he doesn't like being told his history's wrong. And this is what he responds in verse 28. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Then the Spirit of the Lord, it's a key phrase in the book of Judges. We don't have time to unpack it, but it's so key, came on Jephthah. 
He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mitzvah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me, when I return in triumph from the Ammonites, will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Mintha as far as Abel Karaman. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mitzvah, who should come to meet him but his what? Oh. Remember, he made a vow to sacrifice the first thing that comes out of his house. Uh oh. And she was dancing to the sound of timbrels. She was an only child. And you sit and you say, What is going on in Jephthah's head to make that vow? What was Jephthah's mindset that he was operating from that he would say, God, if you just give me the Ammonites in my hand, I will sacrifice as a burnt offering the first thing that comes out of my house. Well, we got to know, this is right around 1100 BC. It's the Iron Age. What a typical Iron Age four-room house looks like. In order to really understand, maybe perhaps this is Jephthah's mindset. And here it is. What's the first thing inside of the door of the house? It's the stable. It's where if you had enough money to make a house, you would put the stable first and you're putting your most prized possession of your sheep and your goats and your donkeys in there. So they're out of the weather. They're away from wolves and lions and jaguars that are present in Israel at night so they don't get devoured. You love these things. You would bring them in so those ones are safe. And then you walk upstairs and there's typically, um, this would typically be your dining room. I mean, they really didn't have that classification yet, but you would eat dinner. Maybe this would be the, your, if you had a slave or a servant, their quarters. And then the back part would be your family room where you hung out and where you all slept together. And ah, man, I just don't think in Jephthah's mind he ever thought that his daughter would be the first one out of the door. I think he's perhaps operating from the mind, either my most prized possession of my sheep or my goat or donkey is going to come through. Maybe a slave or servant, but not my daughter. Because here's what happens. In verse 35, he says, when he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried. Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. Have I made a vow to the Lord? I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. And after the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her 
as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. And you sit there and say, that is one of the most horrific stories in the entire Bible. How could Jephthah do that? Here's a picture of my youngest daughter. I love you, God, but I don't care what vow I made you. I can't sacrifice her. As much as I love you and I want to follow you and do your will, God, you asked me to say, if I made a stupid vow, I can't sacrifice. I'm going back on my vow. But Jephthah did the unthinkable. He sacrificed his daughter. Why is this in the biblical text? Because this is horrific. This is jacked up. This is horrible. But I think the writer wants to get at something. So check this timeline out. Here's Jephthah as one of the 12 judges of Israel. The judge right before Jephthah is a guy by the name of Jair. Let me hear you say Jair. It's a fun name. And then the guy, the judge right after Jephthah is Isban. Or I'm sorry, it's Isben. I have a hard time with that. You just say that name. Say whatever you want to say on the count of three. One, two, three. You guys are better than me, all right? Look at what the writer's trying to pinpoint to us. Jair, it says he had 30 sons. He's a busy man. Like, can you imagine? <laughs> He's busy, right? All right. And then this guy after Jephthah, look what the writer says here. 30 sons and 30 daughters. He's extremely busy. But notice what the writer said about Jephthah. One daughter. And in Judges chapter 11, verse 34, it specifically says, she was an only child except for her. He had neither son nor daughter. She was it. And what are the two most important things in the ancient world? Land and what? Family. And he sacrificed his family. Done. His legacy, his one chance at family legacy for generations to come is gone like that. I think what we could, if we could summarize exactly what Jephthah did, it would be this. That Jephthah sacrificed his future on the altar of the present. He wanted victory so bad right now. And notice what the writer said. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. That wasn't good enough. God, I'm going to make this crazy vow to you because I want victory now in my life. Give it to me now. I'll do whatever it costs to get this victory. I don't care what my future is. I want it now. And in the 1970s, a sociologist by the name of Merchant did a study with the most elite runners in the world right before the Olympics. And he had a fictitious pill. And he asked the elite runners, if you took this pill, you will win gold medal in whatever running event that you're in in the Olympics. But there's one thing. You will die within a year of taking it. 
And he sit there and he studied them and their responses. Well, in the 10 years later, a decade later in the 1980s, a guy by the name of Goldman did the Goldman study. He wanted to look to see if really what Merchant did in the 70s is accurate. And so he decided to kind of elevate his study. He took elite athletes from across the world, gave them that fictitious pill and said, hey, if you were to take this pill, whatever competition that you entered in, you would win it. Whatever it is, you would win it with a catch. Within five years, you're going to die. Would you take it? And the, both studies in the 70s and 80s revealed this. Over 50% said they would take the pill. And then I realized, we're not all that different either. What are we sacrificing our future on the altar of the present? Think about our money. The way we spend it, what we buy, what we write the checks for. We're enslaved to credit cards. We're sacrificing the future of our financial stability because we want it now. We see what other people have. I got to have that now, so let's just charge the card. I got to have this. I got to have that. But you're sacrificing financial stability in the future. And we do that. What about your work? You know, you are working so hard for your family because you want a better family than you grew up in. Maybe perhaps you want the same family that you grew up in, so you are working so hard because you want a future with your family. I'm trying to work and provide so hard every day, working those extensive hours, working, working. And you have all the positive intentions, but perhaps negative results. Because there's a fine line between working for your family's future and working and sacrificing your family's future. Because your family may not even know who you are, mom, dad, aunt, uncle, grandparent. You're working so hard because you want that stability. But in hindsight, when your kids and grandkids grow up, they say, I don't, all I know of my parents is they just work and work and work. Even though our intentions, I wanted to provide and be there. That's why I worked. There's a blurred line. What about for some of us who are dating? The choices and decisions you are making today, are you sacrificing to your future? In fact, Craig Rochelle, who's the pastor of Life Church out in Oklahoma, the largest church in America, he wrote a book called Weird. It's a really good book about how believers, as followers of Jesus, we really should be weird. We should look so culture or countercultural today. And he says this, it's so interesting. The vast majority of people today cross the line of sexual sin long before they're married. I call it premarital adultery because when you commit sexual sin today, you're cheating on the person you're going to marry later. By choosing to live outside of God's standards today, you're conditioning yourself to be even more susceptible to failure later. And then he goes on to quote the, uh, the Journal of Psychology and Christianity. He says this, according to the Journal of Psychology, Psychology and Christianity, up to 65% of husbands and 55% of wives will commit adultery by the age of 40. 
Church, are we sacrificing our future because in the moment we want it now and that's all we see. We don't see the results. All we see is where my heart and my beat and my passion is and I gotta have it now. And I guarantee you if Jephthah was here today, I think he would stand on the stage and with tears rolling down his eyes saying, don't sacrifice it. It's not worth it. In so many ways, we're just doing the same with different things. What about our eating habits? What about our exercise? What you consume with the media? And what we just drink and put into our bodies? I mean, are we sacrificing the future on the altar of the now? We're exactly like Jephthah in so many other ways. Worship team, you can make your way up. I, uh, <clears throat> I think it's easy to justify this. I'm not as bad as Jephetha. I'm not sacrificing children. <laughs> but there's probably one area in your life that in your heart, you've always saying, I just need that, I need that, I'm in the now, I'm doing this, without ever thinking your future. So my challenge to you over the next week is to allow the Spirit to speak into your spirit. Challenge you to say, hey, God, where am I sacrificing my future on the altar of the now? Where do I have to surrender so I don't lose it later? And you know the beauty of God in these moments is on the altar of the now and on the altar of the present is where God's grace meets us. In order to just come and say, God, whatever it is, I'm just surrendering it to you. I need to give it up. I don't, I need to change my mindset. I'm just, I want to be full of you and be thirsty for you. I need more of you. Take whatever it is and I just surrender and give it to you and God's grace will pour upon you. Church, let's make the changes so we don't get caught up like Jephetha on the altar of the present. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, it's hard. Because we live in this culture that's a 24-7, go, 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 instant gratification. Many times we make decisions and we don't even think about our future. I pray over the next week that Holy Spirit, you would just minister to us. May the scales just begin to fall off of our eyes to see where we're sacrificing our future on the altar of the present. Help us to see those things that we need to just get rid of so we can live more like you, Jesus. So we can share your love better so everything that is ungodly is out of our lives. That we can shine for you. Father, give us the courage and strength to do so. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.